0: So today we actually do and are uh, finishing our, our series on um, this leadership, lady, vision, and mission series that we have. And as you will recall, and I'm just going to give a brief overview of this, we began this series in the very part middle part of January about from uh, Psalm 90, uh, verses 12 through 16, where the psalmist says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then to verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So I began that series by simply asking this very simple question, given the number of days that any of us here have left, what do we intend to do with those days? How do we intend to live those days out the rest of our life? What wisdom from God would we exercise so that we can live those days faithfully, so that in the end, God establishes the work of his hands in us? What is the work that God has established for you? And how do you and I intend to make that work last and live for the remainder of our lives? What is our plan? What is our strategy? How's that going to happen? Is it happening? Is it happening as it should happen? Is it happening as well as it could happen? If not, why not? These are all, I think, really important diagnostic questions. And I think that when we begin to ask those questions, then we begin to live our faith in our life with a lot more uh, efficacy, a lot more in the way of um, effectiveness, and I think that's probably the thing that's troubled the church the most over the course of the time, over, over the course of its history, is its um, its waning passion, its propensity for distraction. So, if we were to ask ourselves, you know, what is the thing that we feel most passionate about today? What is the thing that we have been most passionate about this week? or this past month, or this year, where we put our time, how we invest our resources is directly reflective of where our passions are. That's that's just the simple truth of it. Reminded me of a story that I ran across recently um, about a guy who, who hiked what was called the Great Western Loop. Now, For those of you, I don't know if you recognize this portion of the map, but this is like the last, the other third, the last third, the western third of the United States. So this is a hiking trail that someone (laughs) devised. Um, And there's a guy named Nick Gagnon who traveled, who hiked that trail which is 6,875 miles. 6,875. That is, so you know that the width of the United States is 3,000 miles. So it's over twice the width of the United States he traveled. He went through 17 pairs of socks, five headlamps, He was in nine USA states, six national parks. He stayed in 25 backpacker hostels. He walked 15 million steps. Of the only three people that we know who completed this trail, He did it in the fastest time ever. It took him 197 days and 11 hours. Now, I used to hike some. I've hiked the Appalachian Trail twice. Not the whole trail. That's about 1,300 miles. But I did hike portions of it. Once when I was in high school, I went with our campus life group. and We got on the trail down there by... Um, Ohio Pile. Can't remember if it was 12 or 21 miles. It was a whole weekend. And we went with a group of high school students. And uh, (laughs) some of those students kind of knew what was going on and some didn't. Uh, One student who was in, I think, 10th or 11th grade, his mother thought it would be a great idea for him to take an entire bottle of laundry detergent just in case he had to wash his clothes. And so when he only went about four or five miles, he was gassed and out of breath and not in very good shape, kind of doughy. Um, and so we had to break up his backpack and carry the rest of them ourselves uh, while he, he came along behind. It was a wonderful trip. Um, and in that day, um, I, I showed up in what were, what were uh, wrestling shoes. I don't know if you know what wrestling shoes look like, but they're a lot like moccasins. And, um, and when I used to hunt as a teenager in the fall, if it wasn't too cold, I would wear those because you can walk through the woods much more quietly in those than you could clump and through with a pair of boots. And so I was very used to those and my campus life leader wondered if I would be able to do that. And so I said, sure, yeah, I'm sure I can. And so I was, my feet were fine, but my feet are not fine today. Um I have, you know, I paid a price for those kinds of things years ago. And so now my feet are a little arthritic and I can't do that kind of a thing as much anymore. A number of years ago, some of you recall, I did the Appalachian Trail and I did 21 miles with a friend. And uh when we when we did that, it was more rigorous. Uh we were surrounded by black bears. Um they approached our tent at night. You can always tell a black bear from a deer. A deer, when he's walking through the leaves, is like ch -ch 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 -ch." It's real sharp and short. A bear's paw is more ch -ch." When you hear that you know it's probably a bear. So um so we had that and uh so there was, you know, some concern, could potential danger just in the Appalachian Trail. And then it we hiked it during uh, a drought. And so we ran out of water, and so the only way that we could make up our water was when we crossed over a highway, we'd find a lookout, we would wait for somebody to pull off at the lookout, and then Mike, Mark, who was much more handsome than me, I would push him forward and say, ask them if they have any extra water that we could have, and usually they were German or Japanese or some other foreign national, and they were all too glad to give us their water, and then we would continue on. We tried to, in one occasion, we used some iodine to make our own clean water. Um, But it was exhausting. We had about 70 pounds per per person, backpack, with stuff that we had to carry, tents and sleeping bags and food and all of those kinds of things. And that was just 21 miles. So when I read that this guy walked 6,075 miles and that he spent 100, I'm sorry, he spent 100 and, where uh, did that, I'm sorry, he spent 100 and, oh, yeah, 197 days, yeah, I was blotched out here, and 11 hours. Now, and he was in nine different states. So I do know as I read the story that in some places he was in the desert, so he had to carry a ton of water with him. And then he would hike through the snow. And then he would, he would hike through burned out, vast regions of burned out forests. Where he made one mile a day, an hour. His goal was to make about 30 miles a day. And sometimes he did 40 miles a day. Can you imagine walking 40 miles a day on a trail? He's a legend. In his own little tribe, he's a legend already. And here's the thing, that even though this was a great achievement on his part, it's all very temporal. 10, 20 years from now, nobody will know his name. Nobody will care. And yet he exerted incredible effort and risked his life again and again to achieve this particular goal. So, how did he do this? Well, he believed that his goal was worthy, he was intentional, there was no confusion about what he wanted to achieve. He was passionate. There's no way that you're going to take 15 million steps and not be passionate about what you're doing. He was willing to persevere. Earlier, he tried the same trip. He went 4,800 miles and broke his foot. He was unwilling to stop. So he walked another 100 miles on a broken foot until he couldn't stand the pain anymore. And then he had to drop out. He believed and had faith. Not necessarily in God. He just believed in himself. And he had faith that he could do it. And not to be profane. But when you read the story, you realize that he ran his race and he beat his body. He was determined not to be disqualified. Now, if this man could do this thing. For that kind of a goal. Isn't Christ worth even more than that? I mean that's eternal. I mean whatever we achieve in that hike or that race or that marathon is enduring. Isn't it interesting? The amount of effort and time and resources that we put into things that really, in the the long run, don't pay the kind of dividends that Christ promises us on a regular basis. And so, with that in mind then, you'll recall last fall we talked about a particular church model that we wanted to employ, and that was where everybody in this room would find a place for themselves that they felt called to that would become their own kind of ministry or parish, and that a certain group of people would be your people. So how's that going? Who are your people? What is your ministry as an extension of who we are as a church here? I'm serious. Who are your people? Where is your tribe? What has God called you to and me to in relationship to our ministry for them? How are we living that out passionately? In what manner is that a part of our hike, our race, our marathon? I think that's a vital question for all of us. Now, during this time, in order to, you know, uh, kind of highlight this idea of us having our own parish, our own ministry, each of us uh, in this room, the result of that is fruit. That however we employ that or do that, it produces fruit. That whatever God calls us to, his intent is, this, is that we produce fruit. And so I've spent a good bit of time on uh, two particular passages. One is the parable of the talents, and the other is the passage from John 15, verses 1 through 8, and then 16. The truth of the matter is, is that the Bible has a lot to say about the, produ- the production of fruit. It has a lot to say about that. And in 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 addition to that, it has a lot to say about how the fruit that we produce is how we are judged. To the degree that we do or do not produce fruit is to the degree that he does or does not reward us that we are or are not w- or judged. And so... How are we redeeming our time that we have left here on this planet? How are we redeeming the time that we have left here on this planet with the production of fruit as a faithful act of worship to God? So maybe that sounds a little intense to you, but I promise you, I promise you it's it's very much at the core of the whole of the scriptures. And so if that's true, <clears throat> then the implications for us could be rather significant. Now, I want to, and if you have your Bibles, you can go to a key text in John chapter 15. And I've spent a lot of time on the vine and the branches. I've spent a lot of time on... on. You know the sort of the judgment aspect that's in the vine of the branches. I've shared with you that I think that this particular text, the principles associated with it, you will find throughout the whole of Scripture, particularly the New Testament. It is that much of a salient piece of Scripture that is um, that is that is modeled and uh, endemic throughout the whole of Scriptures itself. And so we might visit some of that again. But everything, everything that I've had to say about whether what kind of what kind of mo- church model we're going to have, what kind of parish or ministry we're going to have, or what kind of uh, fruit we're going to produce—all of that, all of that—it just none of that matters unless we pay attention to one particular word in the whole of this passage, John fifteen verses one through eight, and it's this word: abide. abide to remain to be close to to be guided by to be intimately associated with so now i conclude this series by talking about this word abide this word abide is a, in the greek is meno Interestingly, it only occurs 20 times in the whole of the New Testament, this word abide. However, in John's literature, John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, and the whole of all of John's literature, John uses this word 12 of the 20 times in the whole of the New Testament. No other author even comes close to using the word abide abide like John does. And maybe there's, in part, kind of like a, a reason for that. But for John, the word abide is a very important word. In chapter 15 alone, he uses the word abide five times. And just in that, just in that section, verses 1 through 8, he uses the word abide five times, in eight verses, Now, when you think of abiding uh, to remain in Christ, it runs counter to how many people experience God. So, for example, some people see themselves and nothing else. So, if you go on to the next slide, some people see themselves and nothing else. There's no God, there's nothing else that's important, it's just them. And, probably, in the history of humankind, there's never been a more emphasis on self than what there is today. I mean, it's just truly astounding. It's breathtaking. So um, so there are those kinds of people. Then there are those people who see themselves, and they see God. And um, And so God is a person out there somewhere... He may not be the same God that you and I worship, but there's a God or there are gods. And so there's there's some attention that's given to it. They recognize the existence in some fashion, but it's mostly immaterial in terms of the relevance in their life. Now, when a person comes to faith in Christ... They see the self, and then they see God, and they realize that God needs to be in their life. And so we enter into this work where we try to figure out how we can make, put God into the center of our life. How many of you ever used that phrase before, or heard that phrase? Jesus needs to be the center of my life, right? And and that is true, but to be honest with you, I think Satan would settle for that. Because when I am trying to put Satan in the middle of my life, who's in control? I mean, say, or Jesus. When I am trying to put Jesus in the middle of my life, who's in control? I'm the one managing Jesus. I'm the one trying to figure out how that should look and what, how I should work it. The reality is, is that the self needs to be in the center of God. Sorry that those, got, those words, uh, they weren't like that. My, they got messed up, I think, when I emailed it in here. But when we put the self in the center of God, we are abiding What happens to a thing when you immerse it in a liquid for long enough? It begins to be saturated. And over time, there's no place in that thing where that water is not, right? It's saturated. To abide in Christ means to be saturated with Christ. To be saturated. See, if we're satisfied with the the matrix of God being out here and us being here, and we're just trying to figure out how to put more of God in the center of who we are, then we get to pick and choose. When we are in the center of God, there's no picking and choosing. There's only saturation. Saturation. There's only the old self drowning and the new self living. And so I think in its fullest sense, this is what it means to abide. So when I ask us here this morning, in what way are we inviting ourselves? In what way are we looking for ourselves to be saturated by God? What do we do? How does that impact our time, our prayer, our Bible reading, our fellowship? All of those kinds of things which are a part of the saturation process. How does that impact uh, things like our confession? Our repentance? All of those kinds of things as well. So we read here then in John 15 beginning with verse 4. If you have your Bibles you can turn to that where he says... Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The branch that abides in the vine is intimately connected to that, it receives all of its energy, all of its nourishment, all of its uh, instructions about how to live and how to produce fruit. So it is impossible to produce fruit unless we abide in the vine. And if we cannot produce fruit, then it is evidence that we do not abide in the vine. This is not a works righteousness thing. This is an identity thing. Does this make sense to you? So some people get confused and they think, well, if I produce fruit, that means that God wants me to work hard so that he will be pleased with me. It's the, really the opposite of that. It's that the more I abide in the vine, the more I look like Christ. And the more I look like Christ, the more I can't help but do what Jesus would do. Because Jesus can only do what Jesus can do. verse 5 I am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit so we have this we have this like cause and effect relationship here that if we abide in the vine it necessarily means we produce fruit which is a which kind of like poses this terrible conundrum because if I'm not producing fruit, it must mean I'm not abiding in the vine. It can only mean that. So if in our own reflection about our, the kind of fruit that we've produced over the course of our life, if in our own reflection it looks Kind of spotty. Then it means that our connection to the vine has been kind of spotty. Because he's saying here, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. For without me you can do nothing. There is no way to to produce fruit apart from Christ. It's impossible. There isn't anything eternal other than our own eternal destruction that we can produce apart from Christ. So, um, and I I didn't put it up here, but you'll recall I gave you that list of five things last week and I sent them to you earlier this week. And ask you to give a numerical value next to each of those. And I really hope that you did that. Because it's just a really helpful tool. For our own personal evaluation. To see how we're doing. With the production of fruit. How we are doing when it comes to abiding in the vine. So I'll just go back to this hiker person I was talking about earlier. What captivated his imagination so completely that he could raise that kind of an activity to such a level that he gave it that much worthiness and altered the whole of his life in the way that he did to accomplish what he did? But you and I, and I say I too, get discouraged and distracted so easily. If I were to go over a list of people that I've known throughout the course of the ministry that I've done over 40 some years, about why they left the church. I mean, it can be it, it can be unbelievably shallow. And they risk everything. And they'll say, well, I gave it a try. Well, if the hiker dude can do what he did for something as temporary as that, can we not see the level of commitment that Christ calls us to? because of what can be achieved in our life. You know, I used to say to my students at Geneva when I taught them that they they needed to they needed to exercise their ministry in such a way that they were touching eternity. That they were running hard and long in the lives of kids and parents and that they were in a unique place in the lives of those people where they could redirect them through Christ. And that when they redirected them through Christ to Christ, and those people ended up in eternity, they've touched eternity. I mean, it's a really amazing thing that God wants to partner with us to be a part of this eternal project in terms of how it relates to humankind. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Verse 6, And if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. And this is, I once heard, I once heard Tammy Faye Baker, she was being interviewed, and um, he questioned her about the opulence in her life, the diamonds, the jewelry, the houses, all that kind of stuff. And she said, well, it says in Psalms, and it seems to parallel with this passage here. He will give you the desires of your heart. So my desire is to have diamonds and lots of houses and an air-conditioned dog house and all that kind of stuff and makeup that isn't waterproof. So, um, <laughs> so in any case, I, I just get tired of defending that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so, I don't know. Sometimes it's just indefensible. But and I and I have my own issues. I know, but still. It just frustrates me, but when you ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you, if you are abiding in the vine, the things that you ask for are things that are consistent with the nature of Christ. Does this make sense? And that's really what was meant in Psalm in the Psalms as well. He will give you the desires of your heart. Your desire is to love God and God will give you that desire to love him. to be loved. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. Now, there are some anecdotal and biblical examples of what this abiding looks like. So, interestingly enough, uh, is the uh, Apostle John. So in John 19, 26, 20, verse 2, 21, verse 7, and 21, 20, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Did you know this? This is the only way. This, is, this particular phrase is associated only with the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Anytime John referred to himself in the Gospel of John, he referred to himself in this way, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, especially in John 13, verses 23 through 25, we read this. Verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Now, this is a passage that really has a very stark contrast because the context of this passage has to do with Judas who's going to betray Jesus. So Judas is the betrayer. He is the one who is not abiding. Right? And then you have John, who refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And apparently, their connection was so meaningful that John, who was the youngest, as church tradition tells us, who was the youngest of the apostles leaned back, and if you, you picture it as it was intended, he leaned back and put his head on the chest of Jesus. And apparently he was troubled. And he said, who, who is this person who's going to betray you? So this is the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, who was so connected with Jesus that he could lean back in fact, in some of the paintings of the Last Supper, I'm not talking about, uh, uh, not Michelangelo, uh, uh, yes, Da Vinci, thank you. In some of the other paintings, they have John with his head on the chest of Jesus. So John is abiding in his relationship with Jesus. Jesus. Then you have the washing of Peter's feet during the last supper which just took place shortly before this. <clears throat> so Jesus wants to wash the feet of Peter. Now you know that culturally in that day no one washed another person's foot or feet unless they were the lowest of the lowest of the lowest slaves in the household. Feet were considered to be in incredibly unclean. And so it was only the cast off, the person that nobody cared about. It was the slave who was the lowest on the, on the status. It was that slave who was selected to wash the feet of guests or the, or the master that came home. And Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter could not believe that. And he said, there is no way you are washing my feet. And Jesus said, then you will have no part in me. So in other words, Jesus said, you cannot abide with me unless you let me wash your feet. And then he says, and you will understand this later. Well, Jesus was demonstrating that he came to serve not to be served, and that he was willing to be the lowest of the lowest of the lowest in order to make you and me the highest of the highest of the highest. You think, well, you're overstating it. Really? Because the Apostle Paul says that someday we are, we are going to judge the angels. The lowest of the lowest of the lowest. Became that so that he could make us the highest of the highest of the highest. And Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, then you can have no part of me. You cannot abide in me. Then Peter's response was, Lord. Simon, Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Immerse me, saturate me with your washing. You follow me here? This is what abiding is, right? So then we have the death of Lazarus with Mary and Martha. We have the shortest verse in the whole of the New Testament. Jesus wept. So you recall that this is right before, this This was... Um, This was during the time of the triumphal entry and Lazarus died to be a type of Jesus who would die and be raised again so that people, when Jesus raised himself, they would remember that Lazarus has been raised as well. Mary and Martha, not understanding the significance of the death and resurrection of Lazarus, were very upset with Jesus for not coming sooner. Jesus promised them that he would raise them again, that he would, they would be resurrected. And so, um, and so that's how that particular story goes. But the point in all of that is that this is the only time where, we re, where it's recorded that Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He wept because he had an especially close relationship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And they were very meaningful to him. And he loved them very much. And he could see that because he hadn't come, and they misunderstood the purpose of him not coming sooner, that their hearts were broken. And that maybe their faith had been dampened. And Jesus wept because of how this disaffected them in that way because he loved the abiding relationship that he had with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Isn't that the kind of relationship that we want with Jesus? Now, I I have much more here, and I'm not going to have time to go into it all, but if I get a chance, maybe I'll send you all a copy of what it means. Sort of like the list of abiding, what abiding means, how we do that. But at least we have these examples to go by, and to understand the importance and the significance. So I'm saying to you that we can have all of the all of the church models we want. We can have all the plans we want. We can have we can employ all the strategies that we think we need to do. Um, I, I can pound the pulpit. Um, you, we, we can engage in all kinds, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you that unless we as a whole don't figure out how to abide better with Jesus, all of that is for naught. Remaining in Him, living in Him, loving Him, because He is worthy. He is worthy. There's a direct direct correlation between um, how much we abide, how much we abide, and um, how worthy we believe Jesus to be. If we do not abide, then we not only don't produce fruit, because apart from him we can do nothing, We not only don't produce fruit, but we send a very clear message to God, just how worthy we believe him to be. So I would like to encourage all of us this week, this Lenten season, to reflect and to think upon um, who Jesus is, the great sacrifice that he made for us. On our behalf, to take the least of the least and to make us the highest of the highest because he loves us. And predicated on that kind of worthiness to ask ourselves the question, what do I need to do to abide more intimately with Christ so that I can produce more fruit for him because he is worthy? of that effort and that production. And it will demonstrate to the world that I am his disciple and that I want to give glory to him.